Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would pour into our hearts that spirit of rejoicing and that your Holy Spirit would create in us a rejoicing that is patient and expectant. Lord, that in all that we have to go through in our lives, whether it's suffering or joy, we would do so expecting to see you at the end of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. No, it's not pink. It's rose. It's rose Sunday. Um, and uh, yes, while this kind of borders on pink, I don't think it's the proper liturgical color, um, we celebrate Rose Sunday because of the rose candle, but more importantly, because on the third Sunday of Advent, we celebrate the fact that Christ is almost here. Carete, Godete. Rejoice, be joyful, be of good cheer, be merry. Even the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, with its very subdued tone, calls us specifically to rejoice today, right? We just sang that. Why are we to rejoice? Just to feel better? Just because it makes us better people or more pleasant to be around? No, Although those are true, the Bible gives us many reasons to rejoice, but today we're going to look at three, three categories. I want you to focus with me on the words of St. Mary, the mother of our Lord, who tells us in Luke 1, also known as the Magnificat, that we are to rejoice because of God's arm, because of God's hand, and because of God's heart because of God's arm, because of God's hand, because of God's heart. We're given very specific imagery in the Magnificat, aren't we? Very specific imagery. And it's even more powerful when we think that as Mary sings this song, as the first Christian that she is, because she's the first, of course, to hear the gospel message and believe in Christ, that she carries... God himself inside her, in Jesus. She carries God himself inside her. And so as she breaks forth in song in the Magnificat, she literally is carrying salvation and believing it at the same time. Open with me, if you haven't already, to page 45 in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, or Luke 1 in your Bibles, if you'd like to look at that translation. I'll be going out of the Book of Common Prayer on page 45, the Magnificat. And see with me how we celebrate because of God's arm, God's hand, and God's heart. First of all, God's arm. O church, rejoice and be glad. And I'm starting midway, or uh, a third of the way through for he that is mighty has magnified me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him throughout all generations. His arm. 
He has shown himself the strength, he has shown, rather, the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. St. Mary voices this part of the second portion of the Magnificat, and notice what does she do? She changes from exalting God to describing God. She's telling the feats of what God has done, what God has done which is interesting, right? Because Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And here she is saying, this is what God has done. Do you see, looking back, how she's looking back into the Old Testament history. And by the way, this is chocked full of Old Testament references. St. Mary knew her Bible, her Hebrew Bible. Um, She's telling what God has done. She's also telling about what God will do, how she believes it to be, how it will be. Because of what he has done, his, his arm has shown strength, has scattered the proud in the imagination of, has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Obviously, we're not talking about a literal arm here, right? Though he actually does have a literal arm as Mary sings this song. Someone we're talking about here who is strong who God has, who, who is God, but who is strong, who has taken aim, rather, at the proud. The Greek word for the proud here is huperephanos, which means those who think themselves above others, those who overestimate themselves. So who are the proud? I like the New English translation, which uh, translates this line this way. He has scattered those whose pride wells up from sheer arrogance of their hearts. It's this idea of that it's tied to arrogance, to arrogance in their hearts. We might be tempted to think of people who are proud when we read this, right? We all experience that. Maybe on our better days, on our more reflective days, we might think about ourselves and how proud we are. And yet neither one of those is actually the point primarily of this passage. Who are the proud who are scattered first and foremost? Who is the one who embodies this sin the most? This ugly sin of pride, which is also tied to deception. Think about it for a minute. It might strike you as odd, but St. Mary is not referring here primarily to human pride at all. She's referring to the demonic pride. The demonic pride. The pride that was present in the garden way back in Genesis. The pride of the serpent who would not serve and take his place before God's throne. After all, who is it that has enslaved creation? Who is it that has brought the fall? Who is it that planted the seed of evil in Eve's mind back in Genesis 3, telling her that if she ate of that forbidden fruit, she would be like God. No human. No human. But Satan himself, the deceiver, the wicked one. The one whose God, who, who God's arm is scattering here is first and foremost Satan and his demonic angels, the sower of pride the one who lies behind it all. 
St. Cyril of Alexandria says it this way. He says, the arm enigmically signifies the word that was born of her, that is Mary. But the proud, Mary means the wicked demons who with their prince fell through pride, the Greek sages who refused to receive the folly, as it seemed, of what was preached, and the Jews who would not believe. It's pride that often deceives and stands in the way of God, even in the believer's life. Look at your own experience. I know I can look at mine. Stubborn people who scoff at God, who won't see God, are proud. They scoff from pride. They perceive themselves to be independent. I am self-sufficient. I don't need any God. I don't need any help. St. Mary is looking at God's history, though, in the Old Testament, and how God dealt with such proud people. People like Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened, who ended up drowned in the Red Sea. People like the many proud kings of Israel and Judah, who through many different political intrigues tried their best to save God's people on their own without the arm of the Lord. Persian king Nebuchadnezzar, who demanded to be worshipped and whom God made insane for seven years. You recall the passage, or maybe you don't, but it's a great one in Daniel, where King Nebuchadnezzar has to eat grass like a cow for seven years before he repents. Finally, who can forget wicked Queen Jezebel, wife of Ahaz in 1 Kings 16, who, because of her arrogance and pride, gets thrown from a window, dashed on the ground, and eaten by dogs, and who doesn't repent. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, rings extra true when we think of that imagery, doesn't it? Falling out the window. But that's what she sings next. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted the humble and meek. All tyrants in every age channel Satan. And Jesus calls Satan the prince of this world. But while Mary is speaking of kings and powers, earthly and spiritual, the same things assault each one of us when we see ourselves in command of our own destiny wrongly, when we think of ourselves as kings, master, masters of our own fortune, we're like the fool who later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16, Jesus talks about when he says, the land of a rich, in the land of a rich man produced plentiful crops. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my, all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Still Jesus speaking. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be requested of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The same, of course, is true of ourselves, isn't it? It's so true that often we walk off and we think of ourselves as self-sufficient, strong, proud, 
and we lose sight of God's might. We lose sight of his discipline. We resist it. And we try to protect ourselves by which we get ourselves into immense spiritual trouble. But pride, the pride of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Greeks down to us today, all pride goes back to Genesis 3, as I've said, to, the, to Satan, the deceiver, and his angels. St. Mary's statement is about the opposite of Eve's. It's a recognition and a claim of God's absolute strength and power. So when Mary talks about the arm of God, what is she saying? Not my arm. His arm saves. Not my arm. His arm saves. How about God's hand? O church, rejoice and be glad. Look with me once again at the Magnificat. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. What is God's hand like? It's a hand that's open. It's a hand that longs to give. We see repeatedly throughout the Gospels this imagery that Jesus teaches and gives us about God the Father, don't we? Who are the rich? Well, the rich are much like the proud. In fact, often they come together, though not necessarily. You can run into some very proud, poor people monetarily. What's this talking about? This is talking about those who have no room for Christ, who have no room for God in their lives, because they're already full. They're full of themselves, they're full of their possessions. They're full of their own values. They have no room for God to speak to them. St. Augustine points to us to the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus tells. You recall the story in Luke's Gospel. We read it not too long ago. There were two men who went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, says Jesus. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And do you see what Mary's saying here? She's saying this before her son says it here in the Magnificat. That the rich are those not who are monetarily wealthy or powerful, but those who think themselves righteous and rich before God. Like those who are monetarily rich, they're so full that they can't receive anything else. Although that doesn't seem to be the case, does it, with money? The rich always seem to desire after more. The tax collector realizes his unrighteousness. He stood a long way off, that passage tells us. What's that mean? One of my favorite pictures um, is from the, I had to look it up, from the Pre-Raphaelite period in the 19th century. 
It's a picture that I grew up looking at as a child, and lest you think that bringing your children to church and having them sit with nothing to do sometimes doesn't affect them, let me tell you this story. I used to sit in that pew, and it was right in front of the organ facade, and on the organ facade was a picture. It was only about the size of this book, actually. It was a framed picture. And in the picture is this great cathedral. And part of the beauty of the picture is the way that light's used. You look at the picture, and at the front of the picture, way off in the distance, is the high altar, and it's glowing. There's this, this radiance about it. And then there's the nave, and the focus of the picture is on the back pew in the nave. And in the back pew, there's a woman weeping, not even in the pew. I think she's behind the pew, on her knees, weeping. And in the picture, there's Jesus. It doesn't say that he's not in the front, because that, of course, is grand with all this light, but in the back, there's the image of Jesus next to the woman, comforting her with his hand on her shoulder. I think it's called his presence. I think that's the name of it. But it demonstrates this idea. The woman standing far off like the tax collector, not even willing to approach the altar because her sin weighs that heavily upon her and her burden is so great that she just sits, or rather kneels at the back and weeps. It is for that person that the Magnificat is comforting. It's for that person that the Magnificat tells the story of the church and of our salvation. That person may or may not be monetarily rich, but is empty enough to receive the gospel of the Lord. Jesus confirms this himself in his great sermon in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John Stott puts it this way, a great uh, last century preacher and commentator. He says, Hunger is still an indispensable condition of spiritual blessing and complacent self-satisfaction is the greatest enemy. Let me repeat that because it's short but powerful. Hunger is, an in, is still an indispensable condition of spiritual blessing and complacement, self-satisfaction, the greatest enemy. You see, the rich have been sent empty away because they cannot receive. Finally, God's heart. He, remembering his mercy, has helped his servant Israel as he promised to our fathers Abraham and his seed forever. Here at the end of the Magnificat, we get kicked right back to the beginning of the Magnificat. There was a reason I skipped the first third. Because here Mary is pressing in to the truth of God's heart, which has led her to rejoice my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he that is mighty has magnified me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him throughout all generations. 
throughout all generations. How is it that we can sing the Magnificat? It actually seems ridiculous in one sense. This is the song of the mother of God in Christ. How is it that you and I sing this song? How is it that we're entitled to? How is it that in evening prayer we sing it every day? Why? Because this salvation, this redemption, this mercy that Mary talks about is not just for her. It's not just for those in generations past. It's for us today. It's for us today. Because as we continue here with Advent, we're not just looking at the incarnation, the Christmas coming of Jesus Christ the first time, but we're looking all the way at the end to His coming again, whether that's today, tomorrow, in a thousand years. At some point, we will face that reality. Jesus will, either, Jesus will come again to us and we will be resurrected in our bodies to meet him. Some of us may still be alive. Many of us will have been long dead. And yet here is the hope. Here is the hope of Christ. It's important to remember that, particularly at this time because we're tempted by the sugariness of Christmas to kind of see Christmas as just thinking happy thoughts, as if it's some kind of Peter Pan Tinkerbell thing. If you think happy thoughts, then you'll fly. No, Christmas is so much more. The preparation for the coming is so much deeper than that. It's a hope that goes through our sufferings. I had the privilege of giving somebody last rites this past week. He, Al Rhoda, maybe some of you know him, I'll be with his family again on Monday as he approaches the end of his life. What is his hope? Is it in Christmas lights? Is it in Christmas cookies? Is it in all that nice stuff, but stuff that doesn't really matter when it comes down to it? No, his hope is in Jesus Christ, the conqueror of death itself, whom he knows when he takes that final breath, he will see face to face. I've talked with several other parishioners this week who are suffering chronically, whose conditions haven't gone away. We've prayed. We've followed the James passage. We've laid hands on them. We've anointed them. But notice the James passage doesn't say that these people will be healed immediately. It says they will be saved. And healed follows that. That's the hope, friends. That's the hope that trans, transgresses... Transgresses is the wrong word. Thank you. Transcends. Transcends all of this stuff. All of the suffering. All of the darkness that we sang about in our hymns. Christ. Christ. And so, with joy, we sing the Magnificat because this is true for us. Because we really believe this. Because at the end of the day, we depend completely on God's promise to have helped us. 
Roses. Rose Sunday. What are they used for? Love. Life. Death. Who is the rose that we speak of this day? The rose that blooms in the bleak midwinter. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Amen.